Hi, I'm Iris Muller. I'm a certified rehabilitation counselor and a proud mom of two children, one of whom has quadriplegic cerebral palsy and is nonverbal. And I'm Alma Schneider, a licensed clinical social worker and the proud mom of four children, one of whom has Prader-Willi syndrome. In this podcast, we discuss the uncensored truth about raising kids with disabilities. Prepare to laugh, cry, and hopefully learn something new. This is Two Moms No Fluff. Hello, everybody. We're here, Two Moms No Fluff. And uh, I'm here with my friend, Alma Schneider. I'm Iris Miller. And uh, we are going to give you the honest truth about our life with kids with disabilities. And hopefully this would be something that you can enjoy and learn something from. Alma, do you want to introduce the topic of the day? I'd be happy to, Iris. Today we are going to talk about how to interact with professionals when you have a child with a disability. And for all you professionals out there listening in, how to deal with us as the parents to provide as much success for the child as possible and to put the parents at ease and be open to suggestions and everything else that you want to give us. So let's just jump right in and get started, shall we? Yes, uh, I can tell you that this is an interesting situation because once you have a child with the I guess, disability diagnosis, you have a whole bunch of professionals kind of lending into your life, whether mm-hmm. you want them or not. And uh, I did not want them, I can tell you that. <laughs> and uh, the truth is that in uh, the United States, I think all over the world right now, there is a big emphasis on early intervention. And what it entails is that they bombard the child with services in a different opportunity, we'll talk about that, good or bad. But uh, you really find yourself uh, again and again and again uh, having to kind of really deal upfront with the disability uh, of your child and all that it entails. And some people, the professionals that you would meet, would know how to do it with great uh, grace and kindness and really help you hone what you have as a parent and all of your special skills to really support your child and others magically really know how to put you down and uh, not only make you feel like the most incapable parent out there, but also would really shine a bright light on all of the skills and things that do not work in your child. And this is really a miserable way to kind of go about, uh, I guess, helping a family and helping a child with a disability. Because what we really want to achieve, I think, in a therapeutic relationship is to really provide the child with the best possible uh, outcome. And the best Mm -hmm. possible outcome is to really harness the uh, love relationship and the attachment between the child and the parent to make sure that the parents would really care for the baby and take the best care that they can of it. But if professionals keep on pounding on us, this doesn't work, that doesn't work, he won't be able to do this, he won't be able to do that, she won't be able to do this, she can't learn that. At the end of the the day, they just kind of put a wall and distance the parent from the unoperatable baby. 
And uh, this is a very kind of dangerous uh, place to go. We'll talk about that uh, in details later, but I'll give the stage back to you, Alma, and uh, maybe you can share some of your experiences with that. Well, as always, the negative <laughs> comes to mind first before we get to the positives. Um, but this is a negative and a positive story. So I'm remembering very early on, my son required so much in the very beginning and just the learning curve was so steep. We had to learn how to um, feed him with a feeding tube. I was pumping milk five times a day and I had two younger kids at home or two older kids at home and at that time. And I just remember we had our first appointment with the specialist for Prader-Willi syndrome and I didn't even realize it, but I guess I had this expectation that when we walked in there, he was going to be blown away by everything I had been doing because it was such a great feat. You know, I felt like a, I had, you know, was running a marathon. Um, and I remember we got to his office and the first thing he said was, Mommy, you need to clip this baby's nails. He's going to cut himself. And I couldn't, I was so enraged. I just remember being so enraged. All I could think of was, does this guy have any clue as to what I have done for this child for the last six weeks? Because I think it was like a six-week appointment or an eight-week appointment. My whole life had been turned upside down and I was devoting every second of my practical life and my emotional life to this baby. And that was the first thing that came out of his mouth, a criticism. And I will say that after that, he did start talking about how cute the baby was and, you know, all these sweet things about him. And I did appreciate that. That was very positive that he did that. But I will not forget how I walked in there, you know, and I didn't even expect him to be like, mm -hmm, you're so great. And I can't believe, you know, how much you've devoted to him with your, you know, breastfeeding to, you know, to pump and to feed him through this tube like that. So that was, that's my very first, um, after the negative NICU diagnosis, the way that was conveyed to me this was an opportunity to have things like lifted up because I was at a, you know, a specialist office for the syndrome. Um, I'm also, I do want to give a positive um, shout out to the geneticist that we met with who um, after the initial NICU diagnosis, we went to see a geneticist uh, a couple of weeks later. And I remember him being so kind and so positive and just in contrast to the NICU delivery, you know, that I, that I received, he, this geneticist, um, he said, you know, by the time your kid is older, there's going to be so many things that are going to, you know, he even said, don't go online and, and listen to, to, to all the things that they say. Um, but he said, there's going to be so many changes by the time your kid gets older. There's already so much research being done. And it gave us hope, you know, something that we really need to add to your, you know, list, Iris, um, is hope. We need hope for 
uh, and not false hope, but we need hope that things are going to be okay. Um, and that, that we're going to be able to do this and it's going to be different, but we're going to be able to do this. So those are two stories that immediately come to mind when talking about dealing with professionals, giving hope. And then on the flip side, the doctor who focused on the negative of his nails weren't clipped enough, um, to at first acknowledge, you know, this is the first meeting and you're doing a great job. And, you know, I can't even imagine how your life has changed, but you're doing it you're doing it, you know, great. So those are two, two stories to begin with. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I have hundreds of stories, but I, I think what, uh, what I really want to say is that uh, the whole situation maybe in a, maybe diagnostic uh, session or whether it's like ongoing therapy, the concept needs to be to focus on the positive. And I know it's hard when you're there and you're supposed to like give the negative diagnosis and what it means to the family. Mm -hmm. But I am practically like uh, encouraging all professionals to never say something negative without wrapping it in positive. And I want to give an example of that. So we were once in a therapy session uh, for my daughter. And the person who was diagnosing her was uh, working with her. And, uh, and, and she, says, uh, she said to us, look at her. You see how responsive she is? This is amazing. Obviously, physically, she's very affected. And uh, there's the serious kind of like, I guess, neurological damage. And, and uh, physically, she has very little control. But her cognition... That's what would save her. She's so smart. You can see it right away. And, and, and that was like a little bit easier to digest. Like, obviously, our daughter is quadriplegic. She is 13 now and cannot lift a finger to help herself. And uh, with all the therapies, everything that we did to try to kind of reverse the verdict, but it, the verdict is a verdict. <laughs> and uh, at the end of the day, it, it was a nice, a nice way to show the strength and yes. emphasize the strength more than the, the actual deficit in a way. And yeah. when, when I'm uh, asking professionals to do that for the family, I know that it's sometimes really hard. There are babies that really are so complex and the severity of the disability is, is maybe hard to wrap the mind around. In that case, I'm begging you to get to know the parents and yes. talk to them a little bit and find their strength and talk about their strength and what they can bring to the table and how that would be an advantage for the baby in light of such and such and such challenges that they might encounter. And I know it's maybe a professional duty to like reveal everything that you know about a certain situation, um, I guess, a diagnosis or whatever, but save words let the parents discover the nitty-gritty details of what each uh, each thing says on their own if it's a one-time meeting if you have an ongoing relationship with them as a physical therapist would or occupational therapist whatever it is you'll have plenty of opportunities to kind of break the news in little digestible segments but uh, literally the metaphor that you used Alma of a brick of walls falling on you. This shouldn't really happen like that. There is a way to really help parents into this new kind of 
world. And uh, I hope, Alma, that you had also successful times like that, that were like, uh, this is painful, but I can handle it. <laughs> but uh, I, I really wish that we can all have, if not more of those, but, uh, like all of those, at least more of those interactions than less. Yeah, I think that, that the gist of it is really just, as you mentioned, focusing on the strengths of the child. And if you can't automatically find a strength, find a strength, <laughs> because there's always something positive that you can focus, even if it's just your baby is one of the cutest babies I've ever seen. You know, just talking about how cute the baby is or, you know, wow, you know, this baby, you know, seems stronger than the last time I saw him or anything at all um, to to give something positive because we're looking to the professionals, whether we should or not, to who see, you know, a, a, a wide array of babies. You know, I remember myself constantly asking, compared to other babies with Prader-Willi syndrome, how's he doing? You know, and they would, th there's gotta be something. And I remember one time in Ophthalmo, uh, you know, most babies, most children with, or a lot of children with Prader-Willi syndrome have really poor eyesight because they have low muscle tone and, you know, the eye is a muscle. And, um, is the eye a muscle? Uh, a yes, muscle. it's a little different though because <laughs> it's a part of the brain. So this is, for example, why Karen can control her eyes so well and can control the rest of their body, her body. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, but well, let's. Well, yeah. with us, <laughs> yeah. um, with us, a lot of you know there there are vision issues, um, and he we went in to to get it checked out. For him and he didn't require glasses at all and he it made me feel so happy that we kind of dodged one bullet with the syndrome that most people have and he brought it up and he the ophthalmologist without me um saying anything he said yeah he seems like he's in a lot better shape than a, than the other kids that i've seen with prader-willi syndrome and granted he had only seen a few in his career but I will never forget how grateful I was to hear that. And so much so that I wrote him a letter. <laughs> I don't know mm -hmm. if I've mentioned this in, in our other episodes, but I wrote him a letter thanking him um, and asking him to continue doing that with his patients because it meant so much to me in those, early, you know, in that very early time to hear that something was positive and he had a strength somewhere, even though it was just, you know, his vision, but it was something. And I hope, you know, he, 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 listened to that to that uh, letter I wrote and continued being positive with his other patients. So as a parent, if you, and I know most of us are very, very busy, but if possible, if somebody does something that makes you feel good and right, go out of your way to call them, text them, send them a letter, letting them know because they need to know so that they can continue doing it and they need to be appreciated as well for their for their effort that they're making. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, sometimes on a professional kind of side of things, when a child comes in uh, or a baby comes in and they are a very kind of complex case, they find it necessary to point out that they are so behind maybe on this, this and that. But they need to really understand the perspective of the parent kind of running from one appointment to another, from the neurologist to the developmental pediatrician, from the developmental pediatrician to the speech pathologist, et cetera, et cetera. And 
every single meeting like that, it's like negative, 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 negative. It's, it's a devastating phenomena. I think, again, we were really, really lucky because we had that grace period of like eight and a half months with Karen, not knowing anything and just thinking the world of her and the attachment and bonding was so strong that we just like, we were just protecting her from the world. But I can yeah. only imagine how it feels like to have a newborn baby and having all of those kind of things land at you and it's it's impossible to create a normal kind of normal i hate it's not that word but like a, a good positive bond with with the child yeah. that way and, uh, and and a good positive bond is all that the child needs to flourish because really all that the child needs is one adult that believes in them and uh, let yes. it be the parents it's so natural and so uh, i guess uh, optimal when it's the parent who's like the child's best advocate and yes. uh, and and especially when it's a young uh, parent you had the courtesy or luck that you had like two other children before and you had some some sort of a spine you know holding you in your parenting journey because you knew kind of how it looks like but for first time parents this is like it almost like takes the carpet uh, under their feet. They don't yeah. know what they're doing anymore. And and there's also uh, the need not just to stay positive, but also to strengthen the, the parental role and to show the parents that they are in control and they know what they're doing. One mm -hmm. of the ways to do that is to actually ask the parents questions and understand that they expert on that specific okay. child maybe not on the syndrome maybe not on the disability but on that specific child is the parent yes. and give them that space in the conversation as the experts and the physicians who i appreciate most are the ones that take the time and ask me many many questions from a curious standpoint because they know that they don't know right. and uh, that's humbling to be with those individuals yeah. Well, back to you, Anna. And I had, yeah, I had a, you know, I really appreciated our pediatrician who has now retired, which I'm very sad about. Dr. I'm going to give him a shout out right here. Dr. Rabinowitz from West Orange Pediatrics, now Summit Medical. But Dr. Rabinowitz really deferred to me um, from day one with my son. He, if I needed something or a referral for something, he didn't give me a hard time and say, Oh, well, I don't know if he's really going to need that or, you know, he deferred to me and he um, he knew that I was the expert. He acknowledged that he had only seen a few kids with Prader-Willi syndrome and he really gave me that respect and really he would check in on me like, how how are you doing? And that went such a long way. I'm going to tear up now because I love this doctor so much. He was so great. Um, but checked in with me all the time and talked about how, you know, great Lincoln was doing. And he was not the specialist for, for Lincoln, but he was his pediatrician. And it always made me feel good that the, these were just regular pediatrician appointments in a, you know, he had his specialist, he had his endocrinologist and all these other doctors in the mix, but the pediatrician, he was just like there to get like other kids, like to get his, his weight checked, his height, his vision, his, you know, check his ears, check his nose. And I loved those appointments because they were just normal. They were just like, this is a typical pediatric appointment. And, 
um, yeah, there was a lot of positivity there and deferring to me as the expert. And that is so important that we get that respect as parents, because as you mentioned, nobody knows our kid better than we do. And we, we deserve um, to have a seat at the table and we need to have a, a strong seat at the table. And I think that when it doesn't happen, it is unfortunately because of ego and they, they expect themselves to know everything. And if they feel they don't, the professionals don't know everything, they have to kind of mask it. But we see right through that because we know when, we know when somebody's not an expert because we live with this situation 24 seven. So we lose respect for them when that happens. And then you don't have the trust and you don't you know, want to see that doctor anymore. So we need to be a part of the team. Yeah, we need to be not just a part of the team, we need to be the leaders of the team. Yes, and, and we are, and we are, because yeah. it doesn't matter if you go to, let's say, a PT appointment and they give you like 10 different exercises to do with your baby at home. If mm -hmm. the parent is not going to do the exercises, it doesn't matter. You yeah. need to really partner with the parents and you need to get to know them. And one mistake that happened like many times for me, like I would walk into appointment appointments and people would talk to me like, you know, I have no clue about disability. They had no idea I had a master's in disability and like, not disabilities, like in rehabilitation counseling, but it deals with disabilities all yeah. the time. Yeah. And I, uh, I had my postgraduate certification in assistive technology. So they would explain to me what a communication device is. And I'm just like, <laughs> it was infuriating. I'm just like, yeah. stop for a second and ask me, what do I know about cerebral palsy? Ask mm -hmm. me, what do I know about assistive technology, etc. And uh, there, there, there came a point in time that, uh, you know, I, I, I would block that. I already knew, know, knew how to, to block that. And I would tell the, the people standing in front of me what I knew that was much more than they knew, sometimes mm -hmm. in a very kind of like, <laughs> not so polite way, just to prove the point yeah, that yeah. Uh, um, that th this is my field, not your field, and I know more. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that it's important to know who the parents are. It's important to, to befriend them, because right. if you don't befriend them, if you try to kind of like uh, be superior to them in your knowledge or your expertise you're not going to create a partnership you need right. a partnership and the parent needs need a partner and a supporter and someone who would root for them in a very very long and intensive climb and uh, at the end of the day the the child uh, would see the professional for maybe uh, an hour a day mm -hmm. the rest of their time is spent with the parents and this is why that relationship between the child and the parent is so important. And I've seen like uh, mothers, you know, that had to feed uh, their children to a feeding tube, going slowly, kind of like uh, injecting that uh, breast milk slowly, slowly. And I've seen a mother just like, pump the whole thing at once into her baby's stomach. And it's like, ah, but on the other hand, you really understand from just like little action, like how where is she coming to this interaction from? He needs this, this food now. It's only kind of instrumental. I need to feed him and, 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 and that's it. And it's, it's sad, but I, I also understand like how, how she got there. It's a, uh, life is hard sometimes. It's very hard. It's very hard. And you're reminding me of a situation um, where 
maybe the doctors assumed that I did know things. So it's sort of the flip side of what you're talking about. They assumed that I knew something that I didn't know, and it caused a tremendous problem in our lives. And that was um, with a feeding tube. It's so important that doctors check in and make sure that we have all the information that we need, because as we always say in this podcast, we don't know what we don't know. And my example with that is uh, Lincoln had a feeding tube. He had a G tube in his stomach and I was uh, feeding him through a uh, tube, holding the tube, having absolutely no knowledge that um, there was a machine that could feed him automatically through the night instead of me getting up at four o'clock in the morning. And I don't know if I've mentioned this in previous episodes, but I was absolutely exhausted. And one time I was holding the tube above him and I fell asleep and woke up only because I had spilled my precious breast milk that I had pumped all over me because I was so exhausted. It was, it was in the middle of the night, but he had to be fed. And when I explained this, and this was four months into his babyhood. So I had been doing this for four months, waking up in the middle of the night and holding up a tube to feed him that took a really long time to very slowly go into his stomach. And only when, oops, hold on, it's my, something's going on with my tube. Um, only when I vented about it to a friend that I had spilled breast milk all over myself, my friend Leslie, did she say, you don't have a digital machine doing this? And I was like, what are you talking about? So yet another reason why it's important to have friends in a similar boat um, that you can speak with. But had I not spoken with her about this, I would have been doing this for a year, feeding him through a tube in the middle of the night. And no, I was, again, I was so enraged that nobody in this team of people that I was dealing with had mentioned to me, and I had complained constantly about how hard it was to feed him in the middle of the night. Nobody either knew or mentioned to me, just neglected to mention that there was a machine that did this in the middle of the night, so I didn't have to get up. Um, so all to say, professionals really need to make sure that everything is covered as much as possible by hooking people up with organizations that might explain this. Um, a, a nurse, oops, can you hear me okay? This is yes. going in. Okay. Um, a, a nurse that talks about this kind of stuff or whoever it would be to explain everything about the practical job of dealing with the child to basically keep them alive, which is this feeding issue. But um, it's so important that we have all the information that we could, that, that we need. Um, I was going to bring up one other story. Now I'm forgetting what it was. So I'm going to pass the mic back to you, Iris. And as you're talking, I'll, I'll try to remember what I was going to say. <laughs> yes, I, I just, you reminded me something like funny that one of the, maybe back then it wasn't that funny, but one of the early kind of a PT evaluations, they sent us, I don't know, somewhere in Berkeley and there was a really young uh, new professional that was assigned to uh, do Karen's evaluation. And, and she really kind of took joy in the fact that this is the most severe case she's oh. ever seen. 
and oh you God. could like you could like oh oh it is like wow like this really like i've never seen someone with such low tone or like this. and oh and, and on and on about um you know obviously the legs weren't functioning the hands weren't functioning she wasn't able to sit she wasn't able to crawl etc so there was a lot to kind of like tap her ego with uh, in discovering but uh, there's also like um a time and a place for each individual in the team of professional at a certain mm -hmm. workplace to be doing certain jobs. And this was definitely not the right individual for the task. <laughs> she was uh, obviously young. She didn't have children of her own. She didn't even understand the magnitude of what she was dealing with in, mm -hmm. in so many different levels. And uh, there, there needs to be a certain level of emotional maturity Yes. for something like that and mm -hmm. um and it was a uh, it was almost uh, ironic to me because i think that also depending on which background you come from there's lots of uh, counseling skills that uh, you and i learned as part of our master's program i don't know how much emphasis is being put on active listening <laughs> and reflections mm -hmm. yeah. you know when when you study uh, medicine i am mm -hmm. not not too sure about that and it, it should be really a very important part of it because the uh, bedside manners are very important in many very. of those occupations <laughs> the, very it's just uh, sometimes sad but what i want to tell parents in general is that uh, a you can walk out of an appointment if you don't mm -hmm. like the tone of voice and mm -hmm. you don't need to explain anything to anyone if you yep. don't like the professional that we were you know dealt <laughs> just you can leave an appointment you can not answer uncomfortable questions mm -hmm. and have boundaries for yourself it is okay you're not a bad parent if you refuse mm -hmm. to answer questions yep. you're not a bad parent if you are not okay with a certain i guess suggestion for a uh, i guess treatment option mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. please please follow your instinct because the thing yes. that i uh, maybe in retrospect regret are not the times that i did something that wasn't kind of my very I guess, uh, uh, traditional, uh, it, uh, it's the times that I didn't follow my kind of gut feeling mm -hmm. about someone or something. So my recommendation for parents is like, be really kind of in tune with what your thoughts, your preference are, and, uh, and don't let other people, no matter which title they hold, kind of you know, throw you into a different direction if you're not there emotionally or cognitively. Yeah, and um, to piggyback on that, uh, the idea of, you know, having agency is so important. Um, you're reminding me, and I remembered what I was going to say before. Uh, I used to, just because doctors are, you know, we're taught that doctors are, you know, like God and the <laughs> charge and that, you know, um, it didn't even occur to me to say, to say anything, um, when I was bothered by certain things. And I remember that so many times the doctors would bring in a medical student, not introduce them. And it was just like, I had a, you know, would have a relationship with some of these doctors and they would simply bring in another individual, not introduce them. I had no idea who these people were. And, you know, they usually ended up being medical students, but it was like we were a specimen, you know, that my son was a specimen and I was so put off by it. And eventually I just 
you know, I started getting a real attitude, I remember, and I would say, I'm Alma Schneider, who are you? Yes. To the person, and then they would get all flustered, say, oh, I'm so-and-so. And then the doctor would in, say, oh, they're a medical student. And I asked the doctor, I said, you know, in the future, can it, I would appreciate you asking me if it's okay to have someone else in the room. And I remember the doctor saying, oh, okay, is it all right if they stay? I'm like, yes, it's okay, but I'd like to be asked. Um, and I just, I just remember that I couldn't believe that they didn't even, you know, forget about saying this is a medical student, just simply introducing themselves. And just, it was, a, it was a, it was, it felt like such a violation that somebody was in this room without asking me, you know, learning about my child. And, you know, this was a, again, at a younger age where I felt so protective of, of our, inform, our, our information, our private information. Um, I'm just adjusting this because I feel like the sound keeps going off. Okay. Um, and so it was, you know, that lioness in me came out like, who do you think you are coming in here and finding out all of our private pain? You know, I don't even know who you are. You're not, a, you know, so that's, that's one, um, that's one situation where I kind of, you know, that I was able to do that after a while when I realized like, okay, they're not like, I'm, I'm the customer here, you know, and you need to treat me and my son with respect. And as you know, professionals out there, please remember to always ask, not just assume that we're okay for the great, because yes, for the greater good, we do need to have medical students, you know, deal with patients, but we need to be asked. And if we, and we have every right to say no, like, yeah. no, I'd prefer that that person not be in there. And I think that there were a few times where I did say, I'd prefer not if we were talking about, you know, a specific thing. One other thing I want to mention, because um, I know you have some some stories about that kind of privacy issue, Iris, is um, doctors talking about some really difficult things to absorb about our child syndrome in front of our child who was fully cognizant of what was going on and not having the, again, it felt like seeing my child as a, like a, like a specimen or a thing without emotions or thoughts. Uh, um, and I've had to say, can we talk about, you know, maybe Lincoln can go play in the, in the playroom while we discuss this or, you know, just, can, you know, let's discuss that over the phone or something like that instead of talking about it right in front of the child, something that yeah. might be disturbing. Yeah. I, um, ignorance is uh, is all over. And I'm, I'm sad to say that a lot of uh, a lot of professionals really need to uh, to to really learn some humility mm -hmm. and to uh, to ask and ask questions. I remember that one time we had to do like a. A, um, throat kind of tests for Karen, I guess. I can't remember what it was. And the the person who was checking her didn't tell me what they were trying to, to do. And she has so many oral motor challenges and problems. I knew exactly which button to press to have her open her mouth in a way that he could have done it with ease and without causing her any pain. But I had to like stop him halfway through and tell him, why didn't you say that this is what you needed? I could have helped you. And now she would be regressing like two months of therapy because you created this oral motor trauma with your behavior. 
and uh, and it's kind of like uh, the, the parents are the experts there there's no way around that you mm-hmm. can you you cannot bypass that they know the specific child and they would know how to help you do your work better mm-hmm. ask the parent and uh, I, and I, I'm, I'm serious like 99% of the times this is true unless it's a case of really neglect and the parents are, are really not not at all able to relate to their own child but at the end of the day um, there are so many little things of bedside manners in the sense of like uh, not talking to the child with a disability come on you're supposed to be a disability expert you're treating people with cerebral palsy or treating people with spinal cord injuries and you're talking above her head she's 10 years old talk yeah. to her ask her and if you're not smart enough to understand how she's answering I'll help you but right. I think you can understand yes and no don't you like can't you just adjust your questions to ne- ne- yes no questions uh, obviously not they didn't teach that in med school <laughs> uh, but, but there's like a lot of small things like that I don't like when people uh, you know barge into a room without knocking or mm-hmm. knocking and barging and not like saying sorry if they see that we're still changing clothes or something right. Um, there's there's a lot of uh, little things that really can rub rub us the wrong way and at the end of the day like I have certain expectations from from life now because of Karen's kind of uh, you know limitations etc and uh, even the waiting room the the ability of the parent to deal with the front desk receptionist and to have an environment that is more equipped to deal with kids with special needs. And I, and you know, sometimes there's like a, an office filled with uh, children and parents waiting. Give priority to the child with autism because it's hardest for them to wait. Have the courtesy to understand that their situation is different. Uh, so many times I've seen situations that they just like, People are almost like robots, you know, they're used to doing the same thing the same way and they can't think outside of the box. And when a parent of a child with special needs would come to them and ask to make an exception, it's like, no, no, we don't make exception. Make exceptions. Come on. (laughs) Like, uh, this is what, why we are humans. This is why we have hearts and kindness. So we can forgive and uh, forget and let people you know have have what they need at times that others don't need it as much anyway I just uh, I I feel that at the end of the day it's not just educating professionals which is a big big job and a big task that we should take upon ourselves to do but also to really help parents become more assertive and uh, more in tune with themselves and, and know that Yes, you are new to this field. Yes, you don't know much about your child yet and you don't know much about their disability, but you know enough to know better than others who your child is and what they need. And, uh, and, and what don't... we need as parents. And what yeah, we and don't... need as parents to be treated in a way that is going to help us in right. overall. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and don't let go of the, of the little that you know, because that little that you do know about your child is, is a lot. And, uh, and it's important not to forget that, not as a parent and not as a professional. Yeah, absolutely. And 
you know, we're all, uh, you know, I don't think that there's malintent on the part of a lot of professionals. And, you know, if we can be as, as kind as possible in explaining to them that this is really, you know, hurtful when you, when you focus on the negative. And I actually did say that to the NICU doctor. I said, you know, the next time you give a diagnosis, it would really help be helpful if you focused on, on the positives. Like, and he got very defensive. I remember, um, he, and, but it's, it's, you know, unfortunately we're in this role where we do have to educate all the time. And I think, unfortunately, the onus is on us to, to educate professionals because it will help the next person, um, who deals with them. And I would really hope that, um, you know, the next person who enters that NICU is not going to have to deal with someone, you know, reading something from a book in without emotion and, with the kind of ego that that I experienced, it really goes a long way. And I've, you know, I think it's also important to tell, um, to make sure. Just as one last thing that I was remembering, to make sure that you, that as a professional, make sure that you're not alone. That the the person that you're talking to has somebody with them when they're getting the information. Or if a professional is going to tell you information, like the results of a test or something that might be emotionally loaded for you, for you to interrupt them and say, you know what, I'd like my mother, my friend, my husband, my wife to be with me on this call. Can I call you back or can we talk about this at the next meeting? Because you can protect yourself emotionally. I can't tell you how many phone calls I've gotten from doctors with results for different things where I was alone. And I actually did tell the, um, there was a geneticist who gave me information that was very disturbing to me. And I told her in, in the office next time, you know, it was very, very difficult for me and painful that I was alone. I didn't expect you to give me that information when you called. And I wish that you had checked in to see, there was nothing urgent about that information. It wasn't going to change my life in any way that day. And I explained to her, you know, I wish that you had done this, um, had, had asked if I was, were alone. I think my husband was away on business and I spent, I was like traumatized from this phone call. So even something as small as that and her response to me, which was somewhat legit was, I wanted to give you the information as soon as possible because that's when I got it. And some parents get annoyed if I wait um, and don't give the information as soon as I have it. But I said, you know, but I'd like the choice, you know, you mm -hmm. can offer me the choice. And I would have said, I don't want to know, or can it wait? So anyway, there are so many things and I'm sure we'll be addressing a lot of these issues in future episodes. There's a lot of overlap here and we're going to be talking about these kind of situations in other professional arenas, like dealing with teachers and, um, other types of professionals. We've pretty much focused today on medical professionals, but there's, you know, all different scenarios with different kinds of professionals in our life. And we just have to remember, again, we are the leader, as you said, not just a member of the team, the leader of the team when dealing with our kids. And, and it's important that we remember that and act on it. Thank you, Alma. Thank you. See you next time. All right. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening in. Bye. And don't forget, tell us your stories about uh, successful experiences you've had with professionals and maybe not such successful ones that can help someone in the future. Yeah, that really is helpful. Thank you. Thank you. See you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
For more information, please go to www.twomomsnofluff.com. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and give it a five-star rating so more people can hear it. Thank you.